sometimes you hear a song and you just think, I should have just played that instead of preached last week. Um, that's what we're talking about, abiding in Christ, that our union with Christ, our abiding with Christ is the way we were always supposed to live, is the way we are to live as Christians. So keep that song. I want to just also point out, take these home, read the words, meditate on the words, read the passages. Um, They're very helpful. But we are going to look this morning at Romans chapter 6. We are continuing our series on discussions of holiness. The title of the series, The New Year, The Real You. As you might already know, we're talking about the fact that we're trying to uncover and understand and believe who we are in Christ as the real basis for our growth and holiness, right? And we last, the last two weeks, we looked at Galatians 2.20. The first of the two discussions, we focused on the passive righteousness of Christ, and the idea is all of us are longing to be right. We're longing to be uh, right about our life. We want, ourselves, we want to feel justified. And yet the only way you can truly be justified is the passive righteousness that is the received righteousness Christ gives you. Galatians 2.20 also talks about union with Christ. Right, so we talked last week about the fact that the, the point from all of eternity was not to be really good by yourself and occasionally lean in on God or Christ, but we were always designed to be in union with the triune God through the second person of the Trinity. So, Paul, of course, says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Now the life that I live in the body, I live by faith. By faith. This week in in Romans 6, we're going to really ratchet that up a little bit. What does that mean to be dead in Christ and risen with Christ? What does that look like? Years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was probably one of the most famous preachers of the 1900s, the 20th century in England, before his very, very famous Romans series began, someone asked him, when are you going to preach on the book of Romans? And his answer was, just as soon as I understand chapter 6. Well, that's what we're looking at this morning, chapter 6. And let me just say, I don't know that I understand it. And I don't know that we're going to leave here with the perfect understanding. Let me, say, let, me, let me be a little bit more encouraging. We'll get it. We'll get the premise of it, and it's important but really for the rest of our lives, these critical truths of the gospel, need to come, we need to come back to them over and over again, like, like meals, coming back to be fed again and again. So we're going to read this together, and I'm going to do it a little differently. I'm going to kind of pause. It's a longer section. I'm going to pause as we read. Also, we're adding uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 and verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5, because really 6 is a response to what was said in 5. And yet I didn't feel like we could do two full chapters. So uh, we'll kind of go through this and then we'll unpack it for our discussion this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified, that is counted righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what you're after. Like we don't know it sometimes, but we're after peace. And peace, when you have the peace of Christ, that is the foundation for everything else. So Paul is setting that up at the beginning of chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of that chapter, verse 20, Now the law came, and to increase the trespass. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's interesting. We can't fully unpack that. We'll get a little bit of that in the sermon, but I just want you to picture the dermatologist photo of the two faces. You have like, oh, there's the normal face that we all see. Then, oh my gosh, all the freckles and the skin cancer potentials. Have you seen those pictures, anyone? The law does that. The law shines this light so it appears to increase the trespass. Also, as we look, if you look at chapter 7, if you try to live by the law, you will sin more, by the way. So that's what Paul's talking about. But where he says, where the law does that, or the law does that, grace abounds all the more, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, past tense, grace also might reign, present tense, through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I'll move a little bit quicker through chapter six, the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There it is, the goal. We want to walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The last verse you're all getting tired. I've read a lot of verses. This is a really important one. They're all really, really important. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we pray right now that you would break through the distractions of our soul. Our limited attention spans my poor ability to communicate whatever might be hindering the gospel. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the beautiful truths that we've just read, that we would begin to see freshly the freedom we really do have in you. Amen. This opening question, this famous question Paul asks, is somewhat rhetorical. In fact, uh, he's arguing with no one in particular. I believe the term is an interlocutor. He's imagining uh, what you might think. He's presented the gospel in such a way that he's assuming this would be the next question. He says, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Before I give you his answer, most of you know what he says next. I want to just say this. It's not a bad question. I think it's so easy to go, what kind of a fool would think that? And I want you to know the answer should be all of us. The gospel is so beautiful that when you first come into contact with it, you really do start to ask yourself, like, I mean, is there no, like, rule? Is there no law? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've already quoted, said, if you're not accused of preaching antinomianism from time to time, that is, that there's no law, you're not preaching the true gospel. Now, hear me. We don't believe in antinomianism. Hear me. I agree with Paul. But I just want to start off by saying, hey, it should have crossed our minds a little bit. Like, the gospel is beautiful. It's glorious. And then chapter 6. Paul's not admonishing anybody. He's saying, chapter 5 is so important. You got it? Now, let's start to walk carefully through what that's going to look like with sin. Does that make sense? It's not this mean, you don't get the gospel. It's more of, okay, now that we've given you how beautiful the abounding grace is, let's talk about some natural questions you might have about sin. Um, all of us have had the experience, whether, you've even been, whether it's homeschool, private school, public school. I was public school. You can tell uh, you're in a classroom and everyone's doing their thing, and the teacher says, I gotta go to the office. What do you do? I became really excited. As soon as the door closed, hey, you know, like we're free. Anyone else with me? My wife and I had a lot of classes together. She was a really good student, and uh, I was average. And the teacher left, and I convinced her to go do something to the tape the VHS player and she got lunch detention. But then so did I when she ratted me out. <laughs> the funniest part of that story is when we go to the lunch detention, she walks in, this innocent person, into this like room of like vandals, you know, and I'm like, hey, Bob, hey, you know, I knew everybody in there. Like, this is where I spent a lot of my time. These are my people. There's something about a teacher leaving the classroom that makes us go, okay, I can breathe. Right? That's one version. I'm going to fast forward to being an undergrad student. I was a good student. I'm trying hard, but I'm still at the mindset of like a freshman or sophomore. And then there were these precious people called non-traditional students. Do they still call them that anymore? Is that like become a passe phrase? These are the people who realize later in life, I really want to learn something. Like, I really want a career. I cherish what I can learn. And they come back, and they're not messing around. They're paying a lot of money. They're a little older. Maybe they served in the military, or they had another career. Now they're coming back to art school or whatever. But they're the ones that are focused. And I'm using that as the example of maybe that's where we want to be. We're the non-traditional students. Like, like the gospel is free. The teacher leaves. But we don't want to just go be crazy. We want to actually get to a place where we love what we're learning. We love the law. We love the Lord. We want newness of life. That's kind of the, the backdrop to our conversation. What we're going to see then this, in these few moments is that in our union with Christ, our peace with God through Christ, we will be freed to walk in newness of life. It's a freedom. It's not a, de- it's not a downer. It's an, up, it's an exciting thing. And we're going to define sin we're going to try to understand what Paul means by dying to sin. And then we're going to talk about what it might mean to live the resurrected life. And let me just say, obviously, 
we can just touch on these things. But hopefully it'll whet your appetite to study these things for the rest of your life in detail. So, defining sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith Short of Catechism asks the question, what is sin? And this is to be memorized. You should, when Brent prayed, let we would catechize our children. It's not a bad idea to be catechized, to have these ready answers. Um, the answer is sin. This is the sort of catechism. Sin is any want of conformity unto or the transgression thereof, the law of God. Let me try to say that a little simpler. Not that I can do any better than the confession of faith. Uh, you're either like not doing what the law says enough or you're transgressing the law. Okay, that's what sin is. You're not, let me just make it even, you're not doing the right thing. You're doing the wrong thing, Okay. Um, sin. We have to define it. Why? Because there's a part of us that thinks it's good. Like there really is. Like the students in the classroom when the teacher leaves, like, yay, you know, I'm breaking rules, but it feels good. And it's not a big deal. I'm going to get a pass. Um, Or candy. When a child eats that extra piece of candy, it's not going to kill me. You know, we treat sin a little bit like that, don't we? It feels sometimes easier I think when you think about sin and in times where you choose to sin, often it's like, I mean, I could do the righteous thing, but this just feels easy. It's right there. I can just tell this lie. I can do this thing. So I want to unpack it a little bit more. Richard Lovelace, I've used this definition before. He wants to expand our definition of sin, saying it's not just these isolated instances of wrongdoing that we think, which it is. It's, it is that, but it's much deeper. He said, rather, it's, uh, consider it more as the organic network of these things. If this network somewhere inside you of compulsive attitudes, compulsive beliefs, compulsive behaviors, maybe I would even add motivations, deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Let me say it again. It's this organic network within us of the flesh that has wrong, it has uh, compulsive attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, and even motivations that are, that are rooted in our alienation from God. That is, we're cut off from God, and these are the things that emerge. It's interesting in our passage, the, the, the English doesn't pick up on this, but Paul uses the definite article several times with the word sin. So in verse six, verse one in chapter six, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin? Now, commentators have wondered, why did he say that? Most likely he's talking about the body of sin. That is the flesh. Going back to Lovelace's definition, the part of us that is in agreement in its alienation from God. In your worship guide, I put a quote from Augustine on the front. Just an interesting way he says that sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So a sin is anything we're doing alienating God. We talked about that last week. You have union with Christ over and above me being a good individual. 
That's important to understand. And the reason that's important to understand is so often when we think about sin, we think of it as all the, the things that, that make the newspaper, the technicolored evil things that would get your photo in the paper. But oftentimes the righteous people are living in just as much sin. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, many have overcome lust or cowardice or ill temper by seeing these things as beneath their dignity and the devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming a chaste and brave and self-controlled person. Provided all the time, he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he is quite content to see your chillbanes, okay, no one knows what that means. That's an itchy skin condition. He's just as fine to see that cured if he is allowed in return to give you cancer. So what, the, what Lewis is saying is the sin is not just the bad, evil things. Often it's the really great things that we, we praise people for if it's based on their own dictatorship of self. That is what sin is ultimately. It's the self. In the garden, it's interesting. You have Adam and you have Eve having this conversation with the serpent. And the serpent just poses a simple question. Did God really, really say and it's an interesting phraseology because I don't think you can ever finish that statement and not have the other person feel shame. Did, did your dad really say? You know, because it implies someone's trying to trick somebody. And it's in that exchange that for the first time Eve looks at the fruit that been, she's been told not to eat and it begins to look delicious. Sin looks delicious when God has moved away from us. Sin looks appealing when we've started to believe God is not for us. And so just as we start to define sin, I want you to think of sin in terms of a relational attempt to turn on to self because you're not receiving God's love for you. Another way to say it, sin is our attempt to regain equilibrium. So we come back to this idea of dying to sin. In verse 6, Paul says, this is our second point. We know that our old self, that's the body of sin, that's the flesh, was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The question that raises is this. What, this is the hardest part. Like, What is being said? This week, I actually interacted with Ronnie, our admin assistant. One of the warnings she had is, if you work with Ryan... He's going to try to verbalize his sermons with you. So I just said, tell me what you think. And it's hard. Like these, like, is Paul say, there's three options. Is Paul saying, when you became a Christian, and Jesus, you die with Jesus, and you no longer are a sinner. That, that view exists, by the way. It's not so much that you have zero sin, but there is this idea that perfection can be had. Well, when you start studying it, you realize that's not even an option because in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies would be a mute, you wouldn't make that statement. If all you had to do is die, become a Christian, and, and, and raise with Christ and not have sin anymore, that would be the last of that conversation. Right? There's so much more to this than that. A more popular view is that what Paul is saying in verse 6 and in this entire chapter is that the guilt of sin is removed. Right? We talk about justification by faith. And what we say is, you receive the righteousness of Christ, and so that the penalty, the guilt of sin is removed. And that is certainly in this passage, right? 
But I think there's more going on. In, verse, in chapter 518, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's both. It's you, you are justified. You have the imputed righteousness of Christ. But there's more, right? The real view here, I think, of what's being crucified and what part of ourselves, what's happening internally for us, is that the dominion of sin is being removed. The dominion of sin. When Paul says, let not sin, therefore, in verse 12, reign, that's the view of a king, of royalty, of someone in power. What Paul is saying is, look, look, you guys have sin. We know that. I have sin. But don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it have rule. Don't let it run rampant. And we're going to talk about how that would happen, but I just want to make sure we understand what's going on. Sin has been crucified. Okay? This is where it gets really hard. Um, I can tell, right? Right now, everyone's like, okay, I need a break. It's getting heavy. It's going to get a little heavier. When you think of the sins, you're often thinking of the, think of a tree of the leaves that you can see. I can see this, the leaves of the tree. What Paul is starting to move toward are the branch sins and the, and the, and the trunk sin of pride. Pride is ultimately, as we've already quoted from Lewis, my turning in on myself because I'm not trusting God. So sin is at its root relational. Now I want to just point, our, I'll point out a few places where Paul talks about sin and law, and then I think this might get a little more practical. In verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law increased your view of sin. Why is that important? Because something we've been saying throughout this entire series is this. You and I love the law. We love law. Now, I remember first learning that concept and thinking, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it, is it the civil law you read like in Leviticus? Is it the ceremonial law? And here's my point. Don't worry about the content right now so much, what law is. Think about this. Look at verse 14. Since you are not under law, it's the position it's the position. You allow things to be over you. We all do this. I, the way I feel about myself and the way I go about my day is almost always, unless I'm living out of the gospel, I'm measuring myself by some set of laws, some set of rules I've accepted. Social rules. Remember when Martin Luther says law, there's, there's different kinds of righteousness in that intro to Galatians, but Christian righteousness is passive, we allow these laws to come into our conscience and define us. Let me give you an example. Uh, I like to read books a lot, except for one condition, if they are assigned. Is anyone with me? I hate reading assigned books. Why? Because now the pressure's on. I'm being observed. How well I read is being measured. Here's another one. I really do drive the speed limit. I do. I, I go 40 down this road until it turns to 30, not because I'm better than you. I just like to do all that dirt. I like Stillwater. I like our traffic patterns. But if there's a police officer with a radar aimed at me, I tense up. 
It doesn't matter how fast I'm going. I just, I'm being evaluated. I'm being measured. Someone's watching me, and I'm hoping the number they see is within the realm of correctness. You see what I'm saying? When we feel like we're being observed, when we're under something, we tense up. That's, and that's what Paul's saying. When Peter was in Antioch, we talked about last two weeks in a row, he's having a great time with the Gentiles, enjoying the cuisine, who knows what kind of music, and I'm just going to guess there was a fun time. And then the, those came from James, and they didn't do anything wrong. The Jews came, and they were fine, but it was Peter. Peter wasn't fine because they reminded him of something of his old self, and he became, what, like scared, and he went and, and started to follow their rules, and he started to live under law again. How are you doing this? Like, where are you living under rules, under law? Where are you measuring yourself through other things? Why do we do it? Why do we, why do, we do all this? Because we're so afraid that if, if we don't pass the laws we've set up, usually these laws are rules of a social group that we're going to be found to be lacking. We're gonna be, it makes us feel vulnerable, right? It's vulnerable. The thought of getting pulled over on a road and being at the mercy of a police officer I've never met. The thought of coming into a, a room and someone saying, have you read chapter three? Let's discuss it. And I don't know what they, the professor wants to know and I feel embarrassed. These things make me change my behavior. And so what Paul is saying is when you live under anything but Christ, you're living under law. Those are your options. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. That's the goal. Since... You are not under law, but under grace. Like, can you imagine for even five minutes of your life to have zero obligations of yourself? Like, zero. Just five minutes where there was no question of, are you going to pay a bill? Is, is there a responsibility being met? I mean, isn't that why we go on vacation? We just, we need to get away from it all. We live with this cloud of responsibility and laws. And Paul is saying, you died with Christ, and that is all died, and you've been risen with Christ. So let's talk finally about the resurrected life that he's talking about here. Um, Schaefer, in his beautiful book, True Spirituality, read it. He talks about how Jesus actually died. Like, that's a physical reality. We who are united to him because of this work of the Holy Spirit, actually died, like our spiritual lives, our spiritual self died. Jesus, point three, rose, actually physically rose again, walking on earth. Schaefer says, we, according to Paul, and he's quoting Romans 6, have also been risen to life as well. In the sense that even though our bodies can die, we can never actually die as Christians. Like, we are living a resurrected life. If that starts to get a, a hold of you and a hold of me, we will begin to live different lives. But here's what it means, and I use the word already, being vulnerable. When God, the triune God, made man, that was a vulnerable thing. Why? Because man had the opportunity to sin and rebel. And God knew that potential. When Jesus came to rescue his own, it was vulnerable. He's in the desert vulnerable, and Satan is trying to take advantage of him. And at the end of his ministry, he's in the garden, 
sweating blood, vulnerable. And he's on a cross, and he's vulnerable. And do you know why you and I sin? Because we don't want to be vulnerable. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. You have not yet resisted sin to the point of sweating drops of blood, referring to Jesus. We, the moment we feel vulnerable, we just, we do something. I feel a little vulnerable. Click on the website. I feel a little vulnerable. Buy the thing. Make the statement. Hit, send the message. Hurt the person's feelings. Start a war. That's what we're doing. But when you live the resurrected life, you're actually leaning into Jesus in your vulnerability, which is every song we sang this morning. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That's not every now and then, maybe on Sunday mornings or if you've had a bad afternoon. That's the posture of the Christian life. So the goal of the resurrected life is to live in our union with Christ, pressing into Jesus. Um, I came across this story this week. I'm going to try to illustrate this and maybe wrap it up. I know it's, it's very hard. There was a man um, who was 19, and I think it was his 19th birthday even. His parents set him down, and they said to him, uh, the aunt and uncle that you've known for years, who are not actually aunt and uncle, they're like really close family, but they're so close that we call them aunt and uncle. They're actually your biological parents. And we adopted you, and here's the story. At 19. And the point of that isn't that he went off into some tailspin. Rather, the point that the author was making was he had to rework everything he ever knew. Like, can you imagine? You'd go back and look at all the books. Oh, yeah, they're always in the background. I see them. You would have to go back and rethink everything, second grade and, you know, all of your story that nothing changes factually that you know, but your experience of it, right, would be different because... They were your real parents. When you come to Christ, when we become Christians, we are adopted, right? But really, it's God's way of saying, you know those two people that you grew up in their house? They're not your real parents. I'm your real parent. Abba Father, the triune God. I'm your real parent. And you need to now understand you have a new name And so our job is as we see sin emerge and we see our flesh trying to rule and reign, fresh opportunities to apply that true story. That's the time to press in to the gospel. That's the time to press into the truth of scripture. I want us to look as we close at this quote from the worship guide from St. Catherine of Siena. She says, when temptation arises in us, we should never debate with it or ask it questions. For that is the precise trap the devil longs for you to fall into. He has a great faith in his own cunning and he expects to defeat us with his clever arguments. So a soul should never ask questions or answer the devil's questions. Rather, the soul should turn to devout prayer and commit herself. She's a female. Not that she's saying all of our souls are a she, but that's up to your own you can choose your own, um, to the Lord. So we're committing our souls to the Lord for prayer so that she does not give in to the devil's tricks. Through devout prayer and steadfast faith, we may overcome all the subtle temptations of the devil. Now listen to where she goes here. Sometimes the devout longing of a soul who loves our Lord Jesus grows cool 
because of a particular sin or as a result of some subtle new temptation. Pause. She's saying there's often times as Christians where things just, they seem to go down. We're not as excited by Jesus. We're not as excited by the Bible. We're not as excited about fellowship or church because some new temptation, something new. She says some people become devoid of all the spiritual comfort that they had been used to and they stop praying, meditating, and reading. In this way, they become an even easier target or a prey for the devil. Listen to this last paragraph. The devil desires nothing more than that a Christian knight would throw away their armor by means of which they defeat all their enemies. A wise Christian knight would never take off his armor. Rather, the more he experiences dullness and spiritual sloth and emptiness in his devotions, the more he continues with his spiritual exercises. He increases them rather than decreases them. Guys, listen, saints in past years would have chewed on Romans 6, chewed on Romans 7, memorized Romans 8. And I'm afraid we don't do that. I'm afraid we get to this and we just say things like, it's confusing. That's the time to press in. This is the time to press in, to press into Jesus and say, Lord, Spirit, teach me what it means that I have died with you and I'm raised with you. Give me an understanding of what it might look like to live as one who has been resurrected, even just this day. Two quick applications would be, one, if you are struggling in a sin that has you in its grips and it's destroying you, turn to this scripture and pray, Jesus, I want to come. I'm vulnerable I need deliverance. You'll probably need to turn to another person as well, a brother, a sister in Christ. And here's what Satan's gonna tell you. Don't do it. There's no hope. You've already lost. But what Paul is telling us in this passage is you haven't lost. That's the enemy. Learn to hear the difference between the enemy and the spirit. Turn to somebody. Turn to Jesus and beg for deliverance. But a second point of application would be more of a longer-term approach. Begin to pay attention to the way in your particular life sin tries to rule and reign. What are your particular sin patterns? Again, saints of old, I believe, were always encouraged to know these things. And I would ask us in this modern era to begin to ask those questions as well. What, what is it that my heart turns toward? Where am I allowing my flesh to get back on the throne? What are the things that are getting me? What are the things underneath the things, right? Is it outwardly, what are the, you know, the seven deadly sins, lust and greed and, and laziness and different things, but, but underneath that, what am I really after? And what would it look like to believe and take hold of the fact that that sin is not on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. But it's gonna take coming out of hiding that's important. It's going to take coming out of hiding. You're, you're deceiving yourselves and so am I. It's going to take coming out of hiding and moving in toward community. And that's where the Lord begins to absolutely show us that we can grow in him. And then you come back to all these songs we sing and we love that talk about weakness and brokenness. And I asked the Lord that I might grow and he showed me my sin. We love those songs. Let's begin to live those truths in this community. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
What a masterpiece Romans 6 is. Lord, teach us each to read it together on our own. Help us to read it in light of what comes before and what comes after. Where we're confused, help us to be humble, to, to press into those around us that might know it, might study it more, to read saints of old who've commented on it. Because, Lord, what we're after is you, Jesus. And you promise that your scripture is one of the primary ways until we see you face to face that we can come to you, Lord, through meditation, through prayer, through confession, through reading your word. Lord, help us to be vulnerable. I really do believe so many times we don't do these disciplines because we're so afraid of vulnerability. We want to do things that make us feel more confident and sure. Holy Spirit, revive us individually and corporately to believe these truths for your glory. Amen.